I'm Christopher Lydon, host of Open Source, and today the fill-in guest host of The Lonely Palette, while Tamar is on hiatus. We've just recently joined forces with Tamar in the Hub and Spoke Alliance, and we wanted to introduce ourselves to you with this recent episode of Open Source, in which Tamar and I had the pleasure of conspiring. From the Museum of Fine Arts to the Gropius House in Lincoln, Massachusetts, to the studios at WBUR in Boston, we're exploring the less is more aesthetic of Germany's Bauhaus on its 100th anniversary. And I'm thrilled to share this episode with all you art connoisseurs, one painting at a time, out there in podcast land. We loved working together. Hub and Spoke. Audio Collective. I'm Christopher Leiden. This is Open Source. Bauhaus, meaning building house, was the name of the most influential art school in the history of the man-made environment. It was born just a hundred years ago in Weimar, Germany's old-time cultural capital, seat of the shaky Weimar Republic after World War I. Bauhaus, the school, lasted only 14 years till Hitler's Nazis suffocated it in 1933. Yet Bauhaus, the model of design, some would say, has ruled the world for a century now. Less is more Bauhaus, seedbed of modernism, signature of a brilliantly austere taste in everything. We make our own soft landing this hour in the Bauhaus realm, at the house outside Boston that the Bauhaus founder, Walter Gropius, built for himself at the start of his second lifetime in America. We're on a hillside in Lincoln, Massachusetts, half a mile from Walden Pond. The Gropius House from 1938 is pure Bauhaus in that driving up, you wonder, is this the house or the giant white cardboard carton the house was delivered in? The shock on entering is the warm, comfy, modest feeling of natural materials, like the cork floors, and then the light passing through. Wendy Hubbard walked us in. It's Walter Gropius's family home, and one of the things that Gropius wanted to do was synthesize his Bauhaus ideals mm. of, I mean, you can see it all around you, simplicity, geometry, functionality, economy, synthesizes that with what he finds within here in New England. So, for mm. example, you just came through his interpretation of a center entrance colonial with a portico, <laughs> but with a twist, right? Because it's this crazy, I'll show you. His portico juts out on that diagonal. It's the natural approach to the house. It's also really beautiful and sculptural. So he takes New England building materials and often uses them in non-traditional ways. Hence the clapboard here on the interior wall. Mm -hmm. They're taking this sense of living simply, deliberately, functionally, you know, the ideals that he formed at the Bauhaus and rooting them here in New England, which is a natural fit. And the look driving by, though, is so utterly different. The most kind description was the sugar cube on the hill or the chicken coop on the hill. The least kind was the abomination on the hill. People How were, about the abandoned gas station <laughs> yeah, on the hill? Exactly. People would drive by and pull in and say, what is this, an, a gas station or what? The cool thing about the Gropiuses, they kept a guest book 
all of their lives, stretching back to Weimar, it's the who's who of the 20th century. Frank Lloyd Wright, Alexander Calder, Jose Luis Sert, all their Bauhausler friends, Herbert Bayer, Alexander Schawinski, Joseph and Annie Albers, Laszlo and Lucia Maholinage, and this small room, there's no pretension. You know, it doesn't matter if you're Vera and Igor Stravinsky, you come to stay, you're part of the family. It's interesting, their art collection, it's a very personal art collection. Friends with Juan Miro, that's a Miro uh, lithograph there. And I want to just tell you a little bit about the oldest piece in the house. And that's the Weimar desk. So watch your step coming in. There you go. Designed by Walter Gropius and handcrafted in the woodworking shop there at the Bauhaus School. And it is paired, of course, with the Breuer chair and represents the two philosophies of the Bauhaus School. The initial Bauhaus in Weimar grew out of the arts and crafts movement. It was about one-of-a-kind material mastery and the Breuer chair, which is good design, mass-produced, made affordable and available. I'm thinking still the most famous house in Lincoln is Henry David Thoreau's cabin. How would Henry David Thoreau react, you suppose? I think he would have reacted well because Gropius, in fact, read Henry David Thoreau. Wow. Yes, and the poets and the philosophers that Gropius admired from his childhood and his youth, Goethe, Schiller, and others, Mm -hmm. had influenced the New England transcendental thinkers just down the road in Concord. And the notion of living simply and deliberately is clearly resonating with Walter Issa and Ati Gropius. Walden Pond, in fact, for the family, was very meaningful and very specific. For Ati Gropius, it was her playground. It was her neighborhood. For Issa, who couldn't swim or couldn't swim well, she enjoyed walking the trails and the paths. And for Walter Gropius, it had this spiritual connection, this connection to the Germany of his memory, the Germany of his youth. So there's a natural connection um, between this family and, and what was happening in late 19th century and early 20th century New England. Peter Chermayev got the Bauhaus bug as a boy from his surrogate grandparents, Walter and Issa Gropius. Chermayev grew up to be a famous designer of public spaces transit systems, aquariums, all of it touched by weekends home from boarding school and the family life in this house. It is a gem, a wonderful piece of work, both a sculpture and a, you might say, living space, but then with endlessly changing connections to the outside. Yes. And what I remember so warmly and with powerful feeling, even now, 65 or 70 years later, is being there as a kid, as a little guy, and spending a lot of time with their, you might say, intimate life among birds. What does that tell you about an architect? I think it tells me, actually, that a modern house, in the best sense to me, is one that relates to whatever is outside. They cared enormously about 
each window and what it looked on. The birds outside were hugely important. The nesting of the bluebird, a few yards from the house, was a huge preoccupation. Can we get the bluebird to nest? And that kind of thing had an impact on me. Peter Chimaev, the Gropius family was your family, in effect. Yes. That's where you went home on weekends from prep school. What was that like? I was welcomed as a member of family, and it was an intimate relationship that was very comforting for a little guy. I was a shrimp, and going to the Gropius's for weekends was a great delight for me. And so I would escape from the prep school world into this family scene and enjoyed that immensely, mm. that's all I can say. He's such a distinctive-looking man in all these pictures from, mm. from the Bauhaus itself. He almost looks as if he's in a movie or on stage. Dark silhouette, bow tie, fashionably rumpled look, but <laughs> mind-going all the time. He had famous wives, including Alma Mahler. Right. And yet there's something, dare I say, cold about the look, cold about even the work sometimes. I mean, I would say he was a very soft man underneath that, that Germanic distance that he cultivated as a way of coping with the complex world out there. But when he was home, he was quite gentle and, and unpretentious and very willing to share his even personal frailties with a little kid like me. I was, I think, 15 when he told me about a dilemma he had. He'd been invited to do a skyscraper in New York City, and he thought, oh, my God, should I do that? What do you think, Peter? Do I know the building you're talking about? The Pan Am building, the big building on 42nd Street that closes Park Avenue. When you look the length of Park Avenue from either the south or the north, it closes the vista of the street. And I think he made a mistake. He should have turned it 90 degrees, and it would have been a blade, and you would have seen the continuity of Park Avenue going through. He did say that he was thinking because Le Corbusier had done a building in Manhattan, and so had Mies van der Rohe, the Seagram's building. He thought it was something he should do. I don't think that was Walter Gropius's finest, you might say, oeuvre at all. His strengths, for me, were not in those buildings. I'm not a fan of the Federal Office Building here in Boston. The JFK Building. I wondered about that, too. Yeah, I think that was, in many ways, an unfortunate choice of things that he got into. His strengths were not as a designer or as an architect, so much as a thinker. Hmm. It was about values. It was about a social agenda. Hmm. And there are those who talk about the Bauhaus only in terms of style and are somewhat dismissive of its social agenda, and I think that's where it's misunderstood. This sounds like Mies van der Rohe, who at some point said the Bauhaus was not an institution, it was an idea. Hmm. And the reason that Bauhaus spread all over the world was that idea. He did something that organization, propaganda, money can't do. But what was the idea? Well, I think many people would say the idea related to the modern world and its form or its living space and its living accoutrements, you know, all the stuff that we generate as a society using materials and using techniques of manufacturing and of 
consumerism and so on, bringing these things together, modernism being a, a way of thinking that was fresh and new. And it was also, for me and for many people, a marriage of disciplines. It was a way of bringing all kinds of people together to make a better capacity to mm. live in urban complexity, especially artists and those who are makers of things or mm. builders of things, bringing the corporate world and the artistic world and the intellectual world and all disciplines together. For me, the best of the Bauhaus mm. has to do with a humanistic agenda carried out by intellects and artists working together, architects or sculptors, graphic people, even musicians. There was a sense of art bringing things together in a new amalgam that had not existed before. That was Peter Chermayev with the gentlest take you're going to hear on Bauhaus at its 100th birthday, but it's not the only version. Coming up, what you could learn about Walter Gropius by taking one of his best buildings apart and reassembling it after 60 years. This is Open Source. Peter Chermayev was just saying that Walter Gropius and his Bauhaus were above all an idea. They are also a 100-year-old argument about form and function what beauty has to do with art, what art has to do with the core needs of a human life. Our guest, Sebastian Smee, won the Pulitzer Prize for Art Criticism in 2011 at the Boston Globe. He's now at the Washington Post and a keeper of the conversations around Bauhaus up, down, and around. For it or against it, Sebastian? Well, Chris, you know, as a style, I'm for it. You know, I'm naturally inclined to be sympathetic to it. I, you know, I, my mother is Swedish. I grew up with a lot of, not Bauhaus <laughs> stuff, but, but mid-century Scandinavian modernist stuff. And I, and I love all that. I love the simplicity. I love the, the ethos of form follows function and, and the kind of transparency that follows from that. You know, you can mm. see how things are made. You can see how it's done. But, of course, you know... I, uh, it's not really just a style, Bauhaus, is it? It's, it's a kind of ideology of conviction. And I'd have to say that I'm not at all convinced by the I ideology behind it. You wrote it. that wonderful line, ideology of conviction, meaning? Meaning that it really was about trying to remake society. And it, it, it was a kind of product of utopian thinking. And, you know, that's completely understandable when you think about the time, you know, that it opened in 1919, uh, World War I had just happened. And what a catastrophe. I mean, no wonder everyone felt mm. that it was time to sort of start from scratch, a kind of tabula rasa, um, uh, pull everything apart and rebuild it from the basics, the building blocks. And there's something incredibly um, admirable about that. I, I think it, it becomes an ideology, though, because it was about applying this new philosophy everywhere. And there is something to me kind of bullying about, about mm. that idea of suppressing local traditions, um, uh, suppressing any idea of decoration or ornament, 
you know, it's a very, you know, I don't want to be sort of uh, essentialist about gender things, but it's a very masculine <laughs> kind of style, isn't it? I mean, it's very rectilinear and, and, and hard in many ways. Um, look, but, but again, that's too negative. There are so many great things about it and, and so many things we can learn from it. Stay nasty for just a moment. In your <laughs> review of the, of the rather remarkable uh, Harvard Museum piece on Gropius, and they have a huge treasury, you said behind the Bauhaus's admirable idealism, you sense a kind of disgust with difference, mm-hmm. localism, for example, mm-hmm. and with humanity as it is. We all feel that somehow. Well, it's funny, isn't it? I mean, humanity is is kind of messy. You know, mm. we it's also it also has an urge to improve itself, and and you know, there's something of of, of Marie Kondo, isn't there, in in Bauhaus? <laughs> it's sort of a decluttering things and and getting you know back to basics and. You can understand, as I said before, where that, that, that comes from, that urge to, you know, Gropius said something about all the old forms are mm. broken, uh, we need to remake humanity. Uh, and yet in that very impulse, there is a disgust with what humanity in essence kind of is. I mean, do we change that much? Maybe not, you know, and, and that idealism is admirable. But if you end up then imposing it on everyone willy-nilly, it's sort of one-size-fits-all solution. And yet he wasn't saying we must remake humanity with, with uh, a blind faith or with militaristic adventures. We must do it by uniting the handwork of craftsmen with ideas of beauty. I, I'm torn because I, I just love that house. I'm sort of bewitched <laughs> by his own house. It's so straightforwardly thoughtful, interesting, various, angular, surprising, mm. and and homey. That was the surprise to me. I've been there before, but it never hit me this way. Yeah, absolutely. And and there is something beautiful in 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 rationality. You know, it is a very classic style. And and when I think of classic, I think of, you know, it's against romanticist sort of feeling and, and over-elaboration and, and, and heightening emotions. It's about sort of calming that side of humanity down, which again is a very valid reaction to a period of war and great passion. It also um, it has this antic touch too. I mean, I'm thinking the banister on the staircase right in the front hall, that center hall colonial. It's this wild, wandering, black, I don't know what, but it's, it's fun uh, let's sure. get though to the sure. sort of the vicious arguments about um, Bauhaus. Um, I'm thinking of um, Tom Wolfe, that hilarious book. I hate, you hate to laugh at it, but from Bauhaus to Our House, 1981, mm. the social satirist in fiction, but incredible commentator. He decided about Bauhaus that sort of European culture mafia, people like Gropius and Mies van der Rohe, but also Freud and Schoenberg, had sprung a monstrous joke on their institutional clients and the American public. They gave us, first, excruciatingly boring buildings, he thought, and they put some Native American geniuses out of work. Here is Tom Wolfe on the radio with Studs Terkel in the 80s. I don't know if you've had the experience that I've had so many times of trying to meet somebody in a in the Mies style or glass box tower after working hours. And let's say the building, the offices close up at 5.30 and you get there at 7, you're going to meet somebody and you can't find the front door. You start pushing these slabs of glass and there's no way to get in. You finally, you see a night watchman 
and uh, you try to attract his attention, but he's got a radio about the size of an aluminum uh, siding salesman's suitcase, and you, you, he can't hear you, and it becomes like a dream. You can't get in the place. Why are there glass towers, huge buildings, with no obvious front door? The important thing to me is to, is to realize why we ended up with Mises architecture, which is summed up, I guess, best in the word, the glass box, uh, and not... Frank Lloyd Wright, or not Louis Sullivan. You know, Louis Sullivan and Wright were contemporaries. They worked together, and they ended up hating each other, but that's part of the course when egos collide. Why did the De Bauhaus style, which after all starts with an architectural sect, in a way, in Germany, in the rubble of the First World War, somehow end up taking over the face of America. Now, that's, the, that's the, really the point with which I address myself. You can love it or, or hate it, but how did it happen? How did it happen? <laughs> Sebastian's me. I mean, there's a nativist, vaguely Trumpian, uh, you know, xenophobia in that stuff, but it makes sense. Some of it does. I mean, I haven't had that experience myself of not being able to find the, the front door. I wasn't quite sure what <laughs> Where he's talking about. Where is the door there. to the <laughs> Lever building? <laughs> I guess so. But, but yeah, I mean, it, it's... Look, it... It happened because so many of those leading architects uh, came over to the States, uh, uh, and that was after the Nazis closed down the Bauhaus in 1933. And, you know, I think that at the same time, Stalin was suppressing modernism in the Soviet Union. And so you had both side, both sort of extremes of politics suppressing this uh, essentially kind of social democrat kind of style. Mm-hmm. And I think that the horrors that came out of the Second World War and the Stalinist regime was part of what made people more sympathetic to Bauhaus. It it may have been that it it might have sort of withered a little earlier than it did, but but when everyone realized how bad those totalitarian regimes had been and that that they both wanted to destroy the Bauhaus, you know, that Mm. made us all a bit more sympathetic. I can understand why they came here, but why did they get the reception they did. I mean, part of Tom Wolfe's point is that we're a kind of gaudy, adolescent, robust, capitalistic, careless, fun, interesting place. And suddenly, you know, the Avenue of the Americas looks like, I I don't know, ten pins. Um, How did that happen? Yeah, look, I mean, I'm actually sympathetic to Wolfe there, and just to the degree that you know, I, I don't think you can impose this this Bauhaus style everywhere without it, it ending up being uh, a really negative thing. I mean, it's lovely for, for wealthy people who have a lot of space around them to, to look out, at, you know, at the big... I mean, one of the great things about Bauhaus architecture was letting in light and big windows right. and space. That's great. If you live surrounded by by birds and trees, uh, like Gropius House, but if you live somewhere else, like in a mm. in a in a tough neighborhood, for instance, you don't want big windows. You want to feel safe. You want to feel, uh, you know, like you're not exposed and vulnerable. And that is obviously one of the problems with the glass box. So a style that that you know philosophically was supposed to be for the masses is actually better suited to people with a bit of money and a bit of space. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's one side of it, I think. You mentioned the unlocal point, which I think is important. I mean, disregard climate, region, history, ethnicity, neighborhoods, yeah. materials. And that's I a could, lot. It is a lot to disregard. And, and I think a lot of American architects, you mentioned 
uh, Frank Lloyd Wright, were brilliant at being sensitive to to to, to where mm. they were from. They were influ- I mean, Frank Lloyd Wright was influenced by by Japanese architecture and so on. But he was incredibly responsive to the American environment right. and developed a style that that expressed that. And um, you know, I, I think that. That's something glorious about architecture, that you get architects coming out of local traditions. Now, it's not, it's not to be nativist about it. They can be influenced by all sorts of things around them. But mm. to impose this one-size-fits-all ar- around the whole world, which in a way is what has happened with Bauhaus. I mean, you see cities as, as disparate as Tel Aviv and Brasilia and, 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 and what Tehran, by the Tehran, way. Tehran, exactly. Singapore, I've seen it. Yeah, exactly. Um, it's everywhere. What does that tell you? Is it popular? I know it's not popular in Singapore, but what about Tehran? I mean, who who wants this? Tom Wolfe says basically it was a sort of tyranny of these egomaniacs and that their clients were subdued, intimidated. I don't think that's fair. I mean, I think they were very powerful personalities who were good at imposing themselves on the world. But I think it's it's like all things. It comes down to economics. I mean, part of Bauhaus architecture was that it was cheaper to build. I mean, and more accessible. Uh, that was, you know, it's expensive to build with heavy materials and to be ornamenting every aspect of the exterior of a building. So this was a much, much cheaper way to do it. And there was something really great about that. Um, And if it's carefully designed and sensitively designed, as the great Bauhaus architects, I think, were good at, then that's great. It's it's not fair, perhaps, to hold them responsible for all the the poor knockoffs. But unfortunately, we ended up with a huge number of poor knockoffs in cities all around the but world. Are you saying, without saying it, that it's a capitalist scheme? No, no. I'm, I'm simply saying that it's it, cost on the contrary, in a way. It, it was just more affordable. That's right. And, and therefore, easier to build, cheaper to build, and so you get more of it. Interesting. I'm thinking of a marvelous architect I met in Singapore who hated that international intrusion. They know nothing about Chinese culture or or Asian culture, Asian climate. It's a tropical city with these, the same old towers everywhere. Um, there's a resentment there, and I expect even in the people who work and live in those buildings. Yeah. yeah. How did they get away with it? I don't know. I mean, I think there is something sad about it. But then we're just talking about architecture. I mean, one of the, the great things about the Bauhaus is all the other aspects of design. I mean, the whole philosophy behind Bauhaus was to unify the arts and, uh, you know, to bring it all together. And, and, mm. and I love, you know, Bauhaus or modernist sort of cutlery or, or cups <laughs> or chairs, of course. I mean, we all, if we Slot love Bauhaus, chairs. we love chairs, right? <laughs> um, you know, whether it's Breuer's or whoever. I mean, you, you, you can't help but admire this sort of simplicity, the economy. Yes. And as I said again before, the transparency of the design, the feeling that, that you, you can see how it was made and that, form does indeed follow function. There's something very rational and appealing about that. I've got to get in one more knock because Norman Mailer was was on this case 30 years before Tom Wolfe and funnier and deeper maybe. But he, he said two things, I mean, among many other things. He said, you know, architecture generally tells you what's going on inside the building. A school looks different from a prison. Not, not in the Bauhaus mode, as it's come to be known. But furthermore, he, he, he just said... It's the architect's ego against every person's hunger for shelter, which he said is pleasurable, substantial, intricate, intimate, delicate, detailed, foibled, rich in gargoyle, false closet, secret stair, witch's hearth, attic, grandeur, kitsch, a world of buildings as diverse as the need within the eye 
for stimulus and variation. I think that's brilliant. And, and you know, whatever you think of Norman Mailer, I it, love it, it's, a, yeah, I it's, him. it's a novelist speaking, right? A, a novelist who understands the human heart, human sensibility. And, and I think that, you know, this, the utopian aspect of Bauhaus was to, was to sort of homogenize all of that and to say, you know, hum, humanity needs to be like this henceforth, you know, mm. to avoid all the conflict and the passions that we've had before. And that's fine. That's, that's, a, that's an ideal. But it's not realistic, is it? What's the recovery from Bauhaus? How is it tempered? And I don't mean just by those sort of postmodern little hats on on, on the same old <laughs> building. But how did the world, you know, soften or change or bend? Well, I think, you know, you you mentioned postmodernism, and of course that's the obvious reaction. And And I think that a lot of that postmodern style we laugh at now. But but when you read Robert Venturi and Denise Scott Brown, you know, writing about Las Vegas, for instance, there right. is a wonderful sort of, you know, acceptance of the world as it is in, in their work and a playfulness, yes. yeah. a wit and understanding that there is such a thing as wit in design. And, uh, you know, I, I I have a lot of sympathy for it. And, 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 and even more recently, I think we're seeing a wonderful explosion of, of, of idiosyncrasy in design, whether we're talking about Frank Gehry or Let's talk the Japanese it. architects, um, some of whom are sort of ultra-modern, like Tadeo Ando, um, but others, others of whom I think are, are sensitive to their own cultural traditions and applying them in a modern world. And, and that's something to welcome, I think. Back to Gropius the architect, Sebastian. The architect, Anne Bea, is learning Gropius much the same way kids learn cars by taking engines apart and reassembling them. She and her Boston firm are consumed these days with renovating the U.S. Embassy in Athens, which Walter Gropius designed in 1961, not incidentally the height of the Cold War. I asked Anne Bea, what can you tell about that man from his work? She tells me, in effect... She's not reworking Michelangelo. She's finding a complete pro who may just have taken himself a little too seriously. Listen. This is Aunt Bea. I think if you walked by it today, you might not place it in the 1960s. You might place it much more recently. It's very fresh. It has this kind of spirit and clarity and simplicity doesn't really seem dated. It doesn't read to me like, oh, this must have been made in the 60s. It just feels like such a modernist Bauhaus structure. I also don't think it really speaks to the Bauhaus in every aspect because it's lighter, airier. It doesn't have any kind of forbidding aspect to it. It just seems to have more of a sense of levity and openness than many of the buildings you'll find at Harvard Law School or other places where his buildings hit the ground and they're very solid. They have a lot of surface. The windows tend to be very small in many of his buildings. These are not characteristics found in this building. This building has a frame and it has a skin. It's one of his later buildings altogether. And as a theorist and as a designer, he changes He doesn't stay still. He doesn't keep repeating the same building. So this building has, I think, more transparency and openness than some of the other structures. This is certainly the work of someone who's unafraid to be specifically looking to the future. He's using modern technology in combination with historic references. And I think in that way he's saying, we're not stuck. 
our way of working moves forward. It's not a building that says, go away. It's a building that says, come on through. That does represent what America wants to convey and certainly wanted to convey after the war. And I remember um, the wonderful preservation architect, Dan Coolidge, who was one of my mentors, saying, you know, Gropius used to say at Harvard, every night before I go to sleep, I ask myself, what does it take to become a better architect? (laughs) And I said to Danny, well, you know, Danny, what did you think of that? And he said, I hated that idea. Every night before I go to sleep, I want to have a nightcap. (laughs) Coming up, getting to know Walter Gropius by the company he kept and drew to the Bauhaus, the genius moderns like the Russian Vasily Kandinsky, for example. This is Open Source. The young art critic podcaster Tamar Avishai of The Lonely Palette comes at the Bauhaus her own way. Her model of the men mesmerized by Gropius and his all-stars is Vasily Kandinsky, who abandoned law and economics and spiritualism in Moscow to come to Weimar to learn, to teach, to transform himself as an abstract painter and printmaker. Tamar's method as a podcaster is to stand in a museum before a work of art, record the reactions of strangers to what they're looking at, and then take her own deep dive into what's behind the work. She and I stood together in the Museum of Fine Arts in Boston the other day, looking at a Kandinsky piece and thinking Bauhaus. This is what Tamar Avishai calls looking with your ears or returning art history to the masses, one painting at a time. When Kandinsky arrived in Weimar, he was assigned to teach courses on the foundational elements of painting, mural painting, free association painting, and color theory. And it's during this time at the Bauhaus when his work takes the shape of this explosive little print. It's from a series of lithographs from 1922 to 1925, entitled Little Worlds, printed on location at the Bauhaus printmaking studio. And it's in looking at them that we begin to see the merging of all the visual vocabulary that Kandinsky picked up along the way. A pure, universal aesthetic language of circles, triangles, existing on flat, overlapping planes. A sense of the disassembled image, or maybe an image that's just waiting to be constructed, like a Rube Goldbergian game my niece once got for her birthday, spilled out of its box and onto the floor. And this pile of shapes, this collection of pieces parts, that still creates such a balanced, cohesive whole, exemplified Kandinsky's immersion in the Bauhaus aesthetic. Consider the fact that a core tenet of Bauhaus architecture was that, like its font, its buildings were stripped of their ornamentation so that you can not only plainly see the materials being used, but their function as well. Form follows that function. And in Kandinsky's print, it's exactly the same. This is an artist who knows the tools he's working with. You can see his building elements, the shapes, the lines, 
the colors. And it's not like he gave up the spiritual dimension as he strapped on his hard hat. He continued to investigate the spiritual and psychological properties of these shapes and colors, believing, for example, that triangles embodied aggression, while squares embodied peace. It was almost like he was seeking out harmony, a kind of efficient trajectory from the material to the spiritual and back again. And there's a poetic metaphor in here for the Bauhaus itself, this idea of disparate pieces coming together to form a kind of uncanny cohesion. When we consider the synergy of its faculty, their fertile common ground, and the influence of their aesthetic throughout the century, you do get a sense of how rare an event something like the Bauhaus really is, like an early 20th century German art school equivalent to the Beatles. And like the Beatles, the Bauhaus went through its own evolution and ended abruptly, at its point of ripest influence over the next generation of accolades. But the effects of less is more Bauhaus aesthetic lingered, coming to define modernism itself. It rippled across European and especially American art, architecture, design, until the 1970s and 80s, when postmodernism had decided it was time for something new. Efficiency drooled, now ornament ruled. Quote, less is a bore, the postmodern architect Robert Venturi proclaimed. And honestly, maybe it is. It's not like the art of the Bauhaus is exactly beautiful. It is, though, at its core, the art of an idea that's been beautifully expressed. And like with any beautifully expressed idea, it's so clear and so well-organized, so efficiently straightforward that you'd never guess the amount of work, both spiritual and material, that went into it. It's simply exactly what it is. No less, no more. You can hear Tamar Avishai's full episode on Kandinsky and many others on many other artists at the Lonely Palette, P-A-1-L-2-T-E.com. Thank you, Tamar. Sebastian C. Smee of the Washington Post, Boston-based. I'm so glad you are. Um, she, she made an interesting question. What does beauty have to do with it and our judgment of the Bauhaus? Oh, yeah. I love what Tamara just did there, the way she presented that and, and took us on that journey. And, and, you know, I think she's right that I think that there there is a really profound aspect of beauty in this idea and in this very classical transparent rational design mm. you know th- th- there is something inherently harmonious about the idea um but i do think it's only one kind of beauty you know i think one of the <laughs> things about beauty is that it's so various and uh it can as she says become a bit of a bore or as robert venturi said um less less is a bore if it becomes the only kind of beauty mm. that that is really validated if if all other kinds uh, you know, if, if ornament of any kind becomes a crime, which is not a Bauhaus idea, but it's a you know something that Adolf Luz said, and which the Bauhaus kind of adopted, um, then you're in trouble because we actually do want to ornament our lives. And mm. I think we've got to be conscious too that modernism, when we talk about modernism, 
you know, when we're t- often we're, we're talking here, we're talking about mostly design and architecture, but modernism in art is, is so much more. I mean, Matisse was a modernist. Uh, yes. Picasso was a modernist. Um, one of the defining things about modernism was its sheer variety and eclecticism, the, the thirst for an original vision. And there were so many original visions. And that's in contrast, I think, to a lot of what happens with the Bauhaus. It, it seems to be insisting on there being only one vision. And for me, that's the problem. I want, Sebastian Smith, I want you to do for Paul Clay a bit of what Tamar Avishai did oh. with, with Kandinsky. Because Paul Clay is just so insanely beautiful to my eye. Mm-hmm. He was at the Bauhaus, but I don't think of him exactly of the Bauhaus. Put Clay in this Bauhaus context. I couldn't possibly do what Tamara did, but I, I do love <laughs> Clay as well. I, I, I think that he's he's an absolute genius. And, you know, it's interesting. There was a great show of Clay's at Boston College uh, a few years ago, and it was all about his connection with philosophy. And you realized he just did have this kind of mind that was constantly going back mm. to first principles, like all philosophers do, right? Just bringing things back to square mm. one. And you see that in his art. It's very... It's not very Bauhaus in the sense that it's very idiosyncratic and yes. it's full of quirks and whimsy and humor, but also deep, deep thought. And mm. it reminds us that one of the profoundest things and the greatest effects of the Bauhaus was pedagogical. You know, it was about teaching. Uh, and, you know, the, the most influential aspect of the Bauhaus was perhaps that preliminary course that everyone had to do. Yes. That, that people like Joseph Albers uh, taught. Would you believe I took that course under Joseph Albers at Yale? That is incredible. That's amazing. Because he, he brought it to Black Mountain and then to Yale, didn't he? It yeah. was called Basic Design. It was nicknamed forever Dots and Spots because you began <laughs> the semester with a nothing but a cork and a bottle of India ink and you made um, black circles on white paper and sort of let see where it leads you. Almost childish, right? Absolutely you know, it's In the same way that Paul Except Clay your self-conscious is. teenagers and what, are, what am I going to do? <laughs> With Joseph Albers right there. Yeah, absolutely. But um, no, I mean, it, it is, there is something childlike in Clay as well and this, this sort of urge to take things back to, to basics and to a spirit of playfulness. And, you know, Albers brought that to Black Mountain and had a huge effect uh, on so many great American and, and, and other artists uh, just through that. And then again at Yale. So I was just remembering the, yesterday, yeah. the, the guy standing next to me in that studio was Robert Grossman, who went on to an absolutely glorious career, airbrush cartoons, magazine covers, hundreds and hundreds of them in New York Magazine and all over the place. Very funny, very, very gifted. Um, he was certainly, nothing Bauhaus at all about him, <laughs> but liberated by that that opportunity. I want to come back to the idea in all this that um, Peter Chermayoff was speaking about. To me, it's a very attractive idea, and he presents it very, very um, compellingly the basic idea in, in the Bauhaus was to a new amalgamation of, as he said, crafts, handwork, a humanistic you know, mindset, and artistic discipline and gift. Mm-hmm. We had a moment, uh, Peter Chemayev himself, he makes aquariums around the world. He, he put colors on the transit lines in the city of Boston. He's a great one for bringing color and a touch and a lift to public space. Mm-hmm. And it's a glorious idea. I mean, 
It really is. And, and, and it, it's all about bringing together these different aspects, right? You know, unifying the things that had become fragmented and, and had fallen apart at the end of the First World War. So that, you know, the, the, the utensils you use are part of a, a, a bigger house, which is part of a bigger community, which connects with public life. Mm. And, and, and as you say, public, um, public art and, and all of these things. And, and, and that's a wonderful a wonderful legacy, I think, that the Bauhaus left us. I was not to say, though, that so much of that modern architecture is really about uh, wealth house. It's it's show-off stuff. It's very, very expensive and um, alienating. Anything but that public thing. I mean, that public spirit. It can be, yeah. I mean, it was it was wonderful. Hudson to... Yards is maybe the <laughs> right, the, the ultimate, yeah. It's true, but it was interesting. Really great listening to Anne Behar. She's such a, a great architect. And speak about it. You know that building in Athens. Yes. Yeah, so, and I, I, I've met Anne as well. In fact, we we happened to be in Tokyo at the same time, and we went on an architecture no, tour together. Um, and and it was such a privilege to to just walk and talk with her about architecture. And we talked about that Athens project. This was a few years ago, but she was already working on it. I'd been there because I had to get a, a, a visa to return to the states, having left. I, I didn't have a green card in those days. And, and uh, uh, you know, the incredible thing about that building is that it does represent openness. And, and the idea was, you know, it was to represent mm. American democracy and you could walk, you know, through it. And, uh, and yet, of course, that became a problem because as there were yeah. American protests, it became a tradition to walk uh, for the protesters to walk from Syntagma Square in Athens to the American Embassy mm. and surround it and, and protest there. And over time, with the security situation getting worse and worse, they had to turn it into something of a fortress. And so you see here the sort of collision of, of mm. this ideal with reality. Um, it's a dramatic example of it, but I think that you get that with Bauhaus architecture everywhere. You know, there is this wonderful ideal. We all agree on the ideal. You know, let's unify the arts and architecture. Let's let's be democratic and transparent and rational and so on. But constantly, this I- idea is colliding with reality, whether it's economics or politics or just the sort of befuddlements and confusions and quirkiness of the human spirit. Yeah, that Athens story is so layered. Here's the great European mind comes to America, and now he's back in Europe um, at a real important site of the Cold War, showing the face of America to to Greece. It's it's really complex. I'm, I'm glad Anne's working on it, and not anyone else, because she's so sensitive to all those layers of history and complexity. Yeah, and part of the job in Athens today is a is a target where refugees want to land, somehow find their way in. And right. part of the, I mean, she didn't say, but the mission of that redesign is to is to keep people out with discrete fences. Yeah, right. It's true. I mean, it's too many historical ironies to cope with almost, and it, it, there's something tragic almost about it. We played with that idea of public art in Boston in the 70s, into the 80s maybe. I mean, there was, you know, shine up, not shine up, but decorate the subway systems uh, open up a new place called the Government Center with Boston City Hall, a new stamp of Boston architecture, the the brutalist concrete style. Uh, where else is, is that fundamental urge to bring artistic energy to everyday consciousness? Where, where is it working? Where is it being tried? 
Uh, I think it's being tried everywhere, uh, but I think with a little bit more originality and imagination than you sometimes got with the Bauhaus. I mean, um, I know that sounds harsh, but I, I, I do think that there's a greater openness to to public decoration that expresses aspects of particular cultures, um, you know, not just a sort of homogenized culture, but recognizing that there are big immigrant populations and allowing them to express their own culture within the context of an American city. Where do you see it? I see it in murals. You see sometimes. it in murals. They're, some of them are older, aren't they? Um, uh, you know, they're I, I, breaking out all over in Lynn, Massachusetts. You see it, right? Right. I mean, look, I, I live in in Somerville. It's a it's a massive um, uh, immigrant population there. Um, I've just been at a concert at the Somerville High School earlier tonight. Uh, my wife teaches there, and kids oh. from all over the world there. It's superb. The examples of public uh, art aren't springing to my mind, but as soon as I leave the studio, I know about ten will spring to mind. But I, I just do think that there is that greater openness, um, and you, you get public art that is kind of quirky and populist, um, and not just sort of everyone having to admire an abstract steel sculpture. You know, I mean, I, th- I think there is a greater variety, and that, that's to be applauded. I think we didn't mention the musical connection, but you heard Thelonious Monk a little earlier. To me, that's a very significant leap to another sort of spare, angular, eccentric individual genius um, that I think <laughs> he should be given honorary membership in the best of Bauhaus. I agree. And there's almost a connection with Paul Clay there, isn't there? In that Absolutely. spareness, but also the sort of the angularity and the, the, the unpredictability. There is an unpredictable element in Clay and definitely in Thelonious Monk that, that just keeps you, keeps your attention. It keeps you engaged. Wit, as Paul, as a Walter Gropius probably never experienced it, and and humor and surprise and sheer fun, right? Absolutely. And it's worth remembering that that is a part of the Bauhaus. And I think people like Joseph Albers, Annie Albers, others carried that with them into... must mention Annie Albers. I mean, uh, she's a great discovery of recent years for me. The textiles that you just just want to wrap yourself in them and... She's amazing, and and you know she's been the subject of a huge retrospective just recently in London at, at Tate Modern, uh, but her work's prominent in the Harvard show as well, and you know her influence on some of my favorite artists, uh, textile artists like Sheila Hicks, who's mm-hmm. an American who lives in Paris, has got a big work opening at Miami soon, but you know it, it, she's had this massive influence on so many different artists, and she wasn't the only textile artists, uh, people like uh, Gunther Stozel as well, who's in the show. Just gorgeous, very simple but gorgeous textiles. Any others that we... Oh, look, there are so many great artists in the show. It's really worth, uh, really worth checking out. <laughs> <laughs> we'll do it. Sebastian Smee, thank you so much. Thank you, Tamar Abishai. Thank you, Peter Chermayev, my new best friend. Thank you, Wendy Hubbard, for letting us into the Gropius house and her associates at Historic New England. Thanks also to Michael Kubo and the MIT Press, which has a wonderful collection of Bauhaus books. There's some special Bauhaus extras on our website, radioopensource.org. Our show was produced by Bauhaus Luzal, Connor Gillies, Rebecca Panovka, the artist Susan Coyne, the engineer George Hicks. Mary McGrath is our constructivist modernist I'm Christopher Lydon. Join us next time. Join us every time on Open Source.